Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Isn't this fun, lovely stroll on the moors? Did you hear that? I heard that. What is it? You think it's a dog? Nice doggy. Good boy. On his first trip to Paris, Andy McDermott is looking for a little danger. Andy, what are you doing? I'll show you guys a stunt you'll never top. But tonight... Andy, this is madness. You're going to get yourself killed. There's nothing more dangerous than falling for the wrong girl. No, don't! Hello, and welcome to Rewatchability. We are a podcast on the Entertainment One Podcast Network. I'm Robert LaRonde. With me, as always, is... Jay McNabb. And, uh, hey... I don't know why I said it like that. (laughs) (laughs) It was spooky. I mean, it's what I think the millennials are calling spooky season. So, that was a spooky voice. It's very apropos. Okay, cool. Cool. Yeah, yeah. And uh, we have a spooky movie. We have two... Well, one spooky movie and one, you know, terribly, terribly uh, awful looking movie. Oh, boy. (laughs) But uh, before we get into that, first of all, we want to thank the Patreons. Those are the people who give us a little bit of money each month. One, three, five dollars, however much you want, really. And that helps us keep the podcast going. And in return, we give you bonus episodes and the podcast early and ad-free and all of that stuff. So if you want to become a Patreon, please go to patreon.com slash rewatchability. Now, Patreons, you may have noticed that we've been uh, a little bit uh, absent recently. Unfortunately, you know, we do the this podcast. The podcast wanted to get a pack of cigarettes and just <laughs> didn't come back for a while. Yeah, yeah. But uh, it's back, baby, and we can make things work. No, I mean, <laughs> we were, we did have to take most of October off because we just couldn't, uh, we just couldn't make it work. And so, Patreons, we want you to know that we've been, you know, we've been thinking of you. We we appreciate your support. We are going to pause your donations for the month of November. So you know that way you're not like you're not like not getting something for your money, and then we'll resume it the next month. And uh, it'll all be good. We're sorry that, you know, we couldn't uh, we couldn't record the podcast for a couple of weeks. It's just, you know, things come up, right? Yeah, this was not a, a planned uh, interruption. Uh, but, uh, yeah, things are, are crazy for all of us uh, right now. And we just weren't able to get it together. 
and uh, we we looked into it, and yeah, we couldn't refund Patreon money, or if we can, it's complicated. So we <laughs> we will pause it for the month of November, deliver a, a regular amount of shows, and uh, and still send all of the Patreon donors the same, uh, you know, the early episodes and and any bonus content that gets recorded. Mm-hmm. Um, so now- so it'll be like yeah, it'll be like a regular month for Patreons, but uh, but uh, no one will be charged. But you know, because we feel bad that, and I feel bad because it's also, uh, you know, I love doing horror stuff Mm -hmm. in October. It's it's my favorite time of year for watching, uh, you know, like you said, spooky, spooky movies. So it it is disappointing that we didn't get to do. I mean, the only other movie we did in October was Magnolia. Scary, (laughs) scary film. But uh, we, thankfully, you and I were able to get together, and we're just gonna get in under the wire before before Halloween ends. <laughs> like it's this a will Halloween probably go miracle. <laughs> this will probably go up like on Halloween, right? Yeah, I yeah. If I can make it work, I just might have to. Like, yeah, yeah. Boil some coffee. Uh, I was gonna say pe- boil some witch's brew. You know, oh, okay. I might have to get some sort of satanic intervention to get this all edited. But yeah, we just wanted to say to all the donors, we haven't forgotten about you. We are sorry that uh, this did this month didn't come together uh, the way we'd hoped. But uh, you know, these things happen. And, yeah, uh, and we'll try to make it up to you next year, next month. <laughs> <laughs> Good lord, I'm tired. Uh, yeah, <laughs> and we watched two goddamn movies for this week. Holy That's right. Shit. We're sort of like making it up for you because, first of all, yeah, we watched two movies this week, and then also the last episode on Magnolia was like three episodes long. So you know, it you was have the- enough to listen to. <laughs> it was like it was like two and a half hours of like us spouting our opinions and uh i like i can't believe that i talked at at such length calling someone else like <laughs> like self-involved and like <laughs> talking about how paul thomas anderson just wouldn't cut anything out <laughs> yeah but, you know i mean you can't you can't watch magnolia while you do the dishes so you know no. That's where long podcasts come in handy, I guess. That's right. That's right. Okay, so today we have two movies for you uh, of equal value. We'll discuss that. The first is, well, let me say, it's American Werewolves in London and Paris, right? American Werewolf in London, the 1981 John Landis film, and the sequel, An American Werewolf in Paris, which uh, nineteen ninety seven. I should have. I should have. I think it's six, isn't it? Ninety six. Um, nineteen ninety six. No, it's nineteen ninety seven. Hey, I was right. Okay. You're right. <laughs> yeah, there you go. And yeah, the it is you know American Werewolf in London is a beloved movie. American Werewolf in Paris, I don't think anybody has talked about since 1997. <laughs> so it was it was a perfect uh, opportunity to talk about both of these films. Now, JM, when was the first time that you saw American Werewolf in Le- London? And when was the first time you saw American Werewolf in Paris? Did you see American uh, Werewolf in London in London? American Werewolf in Paris in Paris? No, I wish. You know, the last time I was in london they were having this is like five years ago but they were having it was around halloween time it was around this time of year and i think on halloween night 
they were having a screening of an American werewolf in London at the London Zoo at the uh, the Whoa. wolf cages where David wakes up. Whoa, uh, that would have been awesome. And I really wanted to go, but I think I was leaving just before Halloween. Uh, yeah, I saw <laughs> I saw an American werewolf in London. I think I was in like grade six or something, and it was okay. a huge movie for me at the time. And still, it's one of my favorite movies. I think it was the first like real horror movie or the first, you know, it was the first movie I think I rented as a kid, like for actually from the horror section. Right. Like I, were you you afraid they weren't going to rent it to you? This is rated R. No, I was with my dad. Actually, my dad was the (laughs) one who recommended it to me because like I was kind of, you know, dipping my toe into, into horror for the first time. And I remember him being like, Oh yeah, I saw this movie in the eighties. Like it's, it's actually really funny. Like it's more of a comedy. I was like, okay. And I think I was renting movies to bring to like a sleepover with some friends around Halloween time. You traumatized those children. (laughs) No, no, we all loved it. Okay. Uh, It, yeah, I don't know. Uh, There, there was just something about it that like, it was that perfect, like gateway horror movie that like, It's the characters are so real and relatable and it does have this like sense of humor that draws you in and it like it is scary, but it's not like, you know, it's not, you know, it it didn't traumatize anybody. Uh, but okay. yeah, I, so I loved it. And it was, you know, I soon soon after that, I, I bought a copy on VHS. It became one of those movies I would watch uh, every so often. And uh, no, I loved it. And I remember when Paris was coming out, I didn't know it was happening. And I remember going to see a different movie in the theater and the like teaser trailer for Paris came on first. And it was, uh, I think it was just that shot where like the, the CGI werewolf uh, like uh, it bursts through the doorway of like a, a Parisian tomb. Right. And it was like, you don't see any footage from the movie. You just kind of see that. And then it's like an American werewolf in Paris. And, you know, being a huge fan of the uh, first movie, I was like, oh my God, like, I can't even believe this is happening. I was so <laughs> excited. Not, not knowing that this had, you know, this was no your Christmas. <laughs> But I, you know, I just thought like, oh, you know, it's going to be David's back. Yeah. Or something. I don't know. I thought it would be, or at least, you know, the same creative team, something. Right. Uh, And then uh, when I found out that that wasn't the case and that it was supposed to be terrible, I didn't see it in the theater. And I think I, whoa, you see everything in the theater. I know. I think I rented it or something and uh, I did not like it at all. Wow. That's disappointing. Uh, what about you? Okay, well, here comes the confession. I had never seen an American werewolf in London. I somehow missed it. I mean, it was hard to watch movies that were overtly horrorish in my house because my mom did not like movies like that. And uh, 
so it was difficult to. And we only had one TV for most of yeah. my life growing up. It wasn't. You like... had that pentagram on the wall to <laughs> That's ward right. off. Well, it, <laughs> just, it works. Just gather around that on weeknights. <laughs> it's entertaining. It's entertaining. <laughs> but I did see an American Werewolf in Paris. No. Yeah. I think it was on the movie network because uh, I also remember. I think like the uh, the infamous bungee jump scene was right. like a big part. Like maybe it was cut into one of its uh, promotional things because I remember seeing that scene over and over again. But yeah, I remember that being like highlighted in the trailer and the advertising. That was like the big selling point of a werewolf movie. Was this, like, <laughs> what are teens into? Uh, b- uh, bungee jumping? <laughs> no, totally. Put it That's... in. <laughs> We're going to have a lot of scenes where uh, the werewolf characters are listening to Green Day and doing <laughs> devil sticks. Were they still doing that in 1997? I, I think remember. they were. I think they were. <laughs> Yeah, and I don't, you know, I thought it was okay. It it didn't, like, stick with me. It was, you know, it was very much of that sort of era of teen horror uh, remakes, you know. I mean, except, like, really, really bad. Um, you know, it had, like, it had, yeah, it had teens, I mean, people who looked like they were on Dawson's Creek. It had, like, hard alternative music all over the place and... Uh, so I uh, I thought it was okay. I honestly I hadn't thought about it very often though. Every once in a while, when there's a full moon, I'm like, oh. I wonder if American Werewolf in Paris was any good. Uh, but I mean, it, it's it's pretty much universally reviled. But that only that only made me more intent to go back and uh, watch it. So I'm very glad that uh, we finally did that. So that yeah, I, can, I mean, it's, the curse it's, is lifted. It's my second favorite movie where a young American meets Julie Delpy in Paris and <laughs> hangs around mm-hmm. with her for a while. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I man, mean, can you imagine if that's how before uh, sunset started or before sunrise started, if it was just like a freak bungee <laughs> encounter? Well, I think it'd be like hilarious if uh, Julie Delphi's character in the Before Sunrise movies was like the werewolf, right? Like, oh, imagine shit. she's on the train and you know Ethan Hawke scopes her out and she's just like wiping some blood off her lip or something. I, mean, I think he leaves it ambiguous. It, that could yeah. totally be part of it. I mean, you never see those characters on a night with a full moon. That's right. So it's possible. That's right. Uh, well, do you want to do the rundowns of, I guess, both movies? Oh, wow. Yeah. It's well, going to be yeah. a lot. I'm going to need wolf-like speed. Are they fast? They sit, In the first movie, they're pretty slow. Yeah. Well, it's like a guy on a, with a wheelbarrow. Right? <laughs> <laughs> it's not, you know, animatronics are not fast. I mean, but, uh, okay, I'll do what I can. So American Werewolf in London first. Let's start with London. This is the Grand Tour, baby. It, it, it stars Griffin Dunn and David McNaughton. That's his name, right? I think it's just David Naughton. Okay, David Naughton and uh, Griffin Griffin Dunn. And they are these two American tourists, and they're walking around the moors of England. And Griffin Dunn, he isn't too happy to be there, but uh, that's where his friend David wanted to go. But 
it's not very pleasant compared to some other vacation locales. It's dark, it's misty, it's raining. They have to get rides with uh, trucks full of sheep. It's, uh, I mean, it's not ideal. But um, so they find themselves, you know, way out in the middle of England, and uh, they sort of stop because they're freezing cold at this pub. And the pub has a strange sort of name. It's called The Slaughtered Lamb, which, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I drink there. I mean, I drink anywhere, but they go you in. You know, it, it is funny, like, when you, it seems so, like, idiosyncratic in this movie, but then when you go to England, it's like, yeah, there is, like, a Slaughtered Lamb-like pub. There's, like, eight of those in every town in England. Yeah, yeah, I thought, yeah, that's what they're all called. With equally horrific names. <laughs> And they're all, I think, probably exactly the same. You go in, everybody stops and stares at you like you're like it's a Western movie or something, and then they just you know wait for you to leave. I would assume. Well, I I've had that happen like so often. I mean, I I guess it's like it's kind of like a cliche, and that's partly what the movie's playing off of. But like this movie does capture like a lot of just like that palpable feeling of like being an outsider. Yeah, and and, ne- and never more so than in in this opening scene where they come into the pub. Look at that. Yeah, what about it? It's a five pointed star. Well, maybe the owners are from Texas. <laughs> Remember the Alamo. I beg your pardon. Oh, he was just joking. Joking? I remember the Alamo. I saw it once in London, in Leicester Square. She means in the cinema. That film with John Wayne. Oh, yeah, of course. Checkmate. Right, with Lawrence Harvey, and everybody dies in it. Very bloody. Bloody awful, if you ask me. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, and these, you know, these provincial British types, they are, you know, they're not having any of what these guys are serving. They try to make, like, a little Alamo joke. It does not go anywhere. I mean, and then they hear some jokes of their own, but... Eventually, these guys sort of get turned out into the night, and the people at the pub, they're sort of debating whether or not they should let these guys go, you know, or whether they should let them stay. And uh, finally, they let them go, and but they tell them, you know, stick to the roads, don't go on the moors. And so they do not listen to them because they're Americans, and uh, they wander. <laughs> sorry, they, sorry, Americans. They invade and colonize the Moors. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Well, yeah, they're, they're wandering. It's a little taste of your own medicine, England. <laughs> this is for the tea party. Still angry about that, but they they're walking and uh, they get attacked by a werewolf and Griffin Dunn. He gets killed by a werewolf, and David Naughton, he gets maimed by a werewolf. And it seems like he's done for, but at the last minute, the villagers come and, you know, shoot the wolf dead and basically save David's life. And we see the the, the wolf, when we see it, it's just a man. So yep. I don't know what was happening there. But anyway, so this guy, he wakes up in the hospital. And you know it's a it's a it's a hospital. There are some uh, nurses there talking about his penis, and they yep. they ask him uh, about what happened, and he says, you know, it was. They say that it was an escaped lunatic or something like that. Though, the word lunatic does have the word moon in it. Huh? Oh, oh yeah. yeah, but he's 
tells them that it was some sort of creature, but nobody believes him. Um, and, you know, he he spends most of the movie basically kind of in this hospital, chilling out and, uh, you know, sort of getting to know the nurses. But there are some some strange things that are happening. Like, first of all, he, he's not hungry. He won't eat any of the hospital slop. That's weird, right? Uh, <laughs> so appetizing. <is> <laughs> But then also he starts having these strange dreams where he's running naked through the fields and forests and, and chasing deer. And then he, he, he eats a deer raw while naked. It's like, put on some pants first, buddy. But uh, they're just dreams. I, I mean, we all have that dream. It's like, you know, it's as common as like waking up in school in your underpants or he also has the Nazi werewolf dream. Do you have that one? Every night. Well, I, you know, this was another like distinct memory I had from when I first saw it. Uh, not just watching the scene, but like when my dad rented the movie for me. I remember him saying, I remember like asking, like, is it scary? And he's like, well, he's like, there's one scene that's really scary. He's like, but it has nothing to do with werewolves. <laughs> and I was like, okay. I was like, so I, yeah, when I watched the movie and it's the, the, like the fake out moment, like after the, uh, the, the Nazi, uh, monster people slaughter his family or, and, uh, it seems like he's woken up, but then the nurse gets stabbed by yeah. one of them and they're like that. And then, yeah, I remember going back to ask my dad, it's like, was it the scene where he comes out? And he's like, yeah, you got it. That was it. Yeah, so good. And Jenny, oh, I, I never know how to say her name. Agater? Yeah, I think so. I've never had to say it. I think I had to say it out loud when we talked about Darkman earlier this year. Right. She was in Darkman. Yeah. And that's when I realized I'd never said her name out loud before. It feels good in your mouth. Uh, Agater. <laughs> uh, it's not that great. <laughs> but... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, where she, I think she was also playing a nurse in uh, Darkman. That's right. She was one of the uh, one of the yeah one of the nurses. That uh, same you know. same universe. And wasn't connected. wasn't also John Landis? Uh, didn't he have a cameo in that movie as well? Oh, did he? I don't remember. I can't. I think that's what it said when I was doing my research, but it could be wrong. That's the other thing uh, that was funny about watching this movie now is like. You know, I don't like John Landis as a person. No. And, you know, I spent a lot of time this summer, like, reading up about, like, the uh, the tragedy on the Twilight Zone set. And, Me too, uh, for some reason. Did you? That's so weird. I, I, I wrote an article about it, uh, about how I, I have, have reinterpreted Jurassic Park as being, like, Steven Spielberg, like, right. looking through his emotions of, of having produced that film. Right. But, yeah, I don't, you know, also, the other thing is, like, I remember just, you know, even just seeing, like, the credit, like, John Landis, and I remember thinking, like, who is this guy? Because he made all of these movies that I loved as a kid, and, mm -hmm. and I never, like, knew what he looked like or what he sounded like. He was just this kind of name and these great movies. And then, you know, years later, you find out, like, oh, he's one of the most annoying people in the <laughs> world. <laughs> Well, yeah, and not just that. And, it was and just other the annoying. Things, yeah. <laughs> uh, but, uh, so, but yeah, it is funny to like to, to think back. I'm like, yeah, I wish I could go back to that when uh, when I just like loved John Landis because he was just a name and like a handful of movies that I adored, mm -hmm. um, and and didn't have all this baggage. And I'd seen the Twilight Zone movie not long after this either, but I don't think I knew 
no about the accident because i was so young i don't think my parents told me about it no <laughs> and your dad wasn't like hey watch out for the decapitation scene <laughs> no no i think i no he must have known but uh yeah i just watched it because i was a twilight zone fan yeah so it, it's you know it's it's hard not hard to reconcile because it's not like you know everyone knows about john landis but it is this movie is just like also seems kind of contrary to like him as like a personality. Like this movie is so like natural and like kind of low key and like economical Mm -hmm. in his storyline. And he's just this like over the top personality. And he seems like kind of a sociopath. And, and this movie is very like, has a lot of like heart to it. I don't know. Yeah. But, you know, I I mean, we can't... Uh... It's like he ha- there's like a duality. There's like a man and a beast. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, I like where you're going with this. All right, so, yeah, we should get through this. <laughs> we yeah. have to get to Paris. Okay, so <laughs> he eventually leaves the hospital. But also, he Griffin Dunn comes back from the dead and says, Hey, you were bitten by a werewolf, buddy. Also, I'm cursed to walk this life in limbo forever until like you die so please kill yourself and uh he doesn't want to kill himself because he's gonna boink this nurse and uh i mean not explicitly because that's what i'm saying but uh he i i I did just quickly do want to interject like i i did read a thing recently it was a it was an excerpt from a book about werewolves that i was reading for work and uh there, there is like a reading. I mean, I guess it's pretty obvious because he talks about it a lot. But like, you could read this movie as being about like mental health and being this right. about this like psychotic break because it's not just that like he's uh, hallucinating all these things. It's that like his hallucinations are literally telling him to kill himself and harm himself. Yeah, and uh, but it's also like very you know, if this is about a guy who's like tortured with you know like thoughts of self-harm like it's also very like uh, seems to be having a good time doing it no but it's also like very like sympathetic and feeling towards him and uh, the thing i was reading was saying uh, because this movie was made in 81 it's the 40th Mm -hmm. anniversary and they're saying like those kind of themes were starting to bubble up in movies more because like it wasn't until like the late 70s that really mental health was sort of becoming destigmatized like in a larger cultural sense so uh, yeah, I, yeah, I think that's, that's definitely in this movie to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, so he goes and stays with this nurse. Uh, they have sex to Van Morrison's moon dance. Of course, now uh, Van Morrison says that people who get vaccinated can't do the moon dance. <laughs> Good luck trying to have sex in one of those like anti-vaxxer anthems. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Does not... It's not uh, not sexy songs, uh, Eric and Van. But everything seems to be good, except that he wakes up one night in naked at the zoo. Which well, happens to the best of us. But he uh, he, he he he. First of all, he <laughs> he he he, call, he gets the attention of a small boy, <laughs> and uh, and gets this kid to give him his balloons to cover his nakedness. I don't think you're making anything better. Man. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, balloons are not where I would. 
<laughs> I would go either. But you did skip over the part where he becomes a werewolf, which oh, I feel like is a key okay. part of this werewolf movie. You're right. He does become a werewolf. And it's like he, <laughs> he's he thinks he's not sure whether he's going to become a werewolf. And he's sort of like playing with the idea. And he's waiting until the full moon to sort of see if this thing is going to happen. But it's not going to happen because that's crazy, right? And he's like making faces at the mirror, making werewolf noises. And it's pretty funny. But And then he sits down to read. And uh, the full moon thing happens, and he's in excruciating pain and just starts writhing on the floor. And then his fucking bones elongate. I hate when that happens. <laughs> and this is one of the most famous werewolf transformations. Yeah. Even just like, you know, body horror like scenes in a, in a movie. Like one of the most mm-hmm. famous like makeup effect scenes in all of movies this this movie won the first yeah oscar for makeup for uh for rick baker yeah uh, who did, i mean it's great and i mean that, that's another thing like i remember when i first got this movie on tape just like i would fast forward to this scene and just watch it and just like try to see how they did it because it really is amazing um yeah i mean I, like it's, some of it's it all you can, practical effects i mean there's no CG. I mean, I, I, I can't believe I have to say that, but maybe like some people don't remember the era where you know there was no computers to do things. You had to like find ways using like you know chicken skins and and calf <laughs> bladders and stuff like that. Yeah, and they went the CG route in the sequel, and oh, oh my. Yeah, uh, we'll get to that. But yeah. and and the you know the other thing that's impressive. I was listening to. Uh, podcast recently with uh landis and uh and joe dante mm. talking about both of their movies because the howling came out in 81 also right that's right and they're talking about it and uh they're talking about how it was also like it was impressive that this scene it's not just that it was like technically so great it was also like really bold in terms of like werewolf movies because like so often like the werewolf transformation is in like the dark in the woods or in the fog Mm -hmm. and this was like it's a brightly lit living room like there's no kind of getting away with some of it like they actually had to sort of show everything yeah and that's also partly what i think makes it so effective that's what i mean that's also the like the what makes this movie so effective in a nutshell is it's like this blending of like the extraordinary the supernatural the mythical with like the mundane this the like uh banalities of like day-to-day life and in, in 80s london like that yeah that's what's so great about this movie and like it's all there in this transformation scene. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's a it's a great scene. Yeah, and it still it still has impact after forty years, um, unlike anything in Paris. But uh, <laughs> but so yes, he be, he wakes up naked at the zoo, and then he goes home. He's feeling exceptionally good, and uh, until he sees on the news or reads the paper or hears that uh, all these people were killed. And he's like, holy shit, I think that was me. And so he tries to get himself arrested. And the the method that he uh, that he chooses for this is uh, maybe a little bit off. I mean, he does he does go up to a Bobby and and starts to like and asks him to, to arrest him. And Bobby doesn't want to arrest him. He hasn't done anything. He uh, he calls the uh, the prince a homophobic slur. 
that's yeah. That's What's true. uh and then I mean I guess at the end of this movie there's an apology to uh, or the, it says you know uh, happy wishes to Diana and Charles on their upcoming nuptials. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Where's the apology to uh, gay people, John Landis? Yeah, I mean, uh, to to the movie's uh, credit, I would say like he he is trying to say something awful to yes prompts his arrest because he uh, uh, thinks he's murdered people as opposed to like you know like just dropping it in casually like <laughs> like a Bill and Ted or something you know um, <laughs> but yeah no I see your point yeah well you know anyway but. It doesn't work, and uh, you know, so he he sort of ends up he's he's alone, and he ends up uh, at a porno theater, as you know, as you do. And Rob, you, can, you can understand that certainly. <laughs> so uh, you know, brings me back to my uh, times at the Metro. <laughs> <laughs> I remember <laughs> for for those who don't know, the Metro was a, a porno theater. Uh, here in Toronto that uh, is now a rock climbing gym. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but I remember for a luster. while, it was also like, like this is in the recent past, like in the past 10 years, it was still operating as a porno theater. Yeah. But then it was like to help keep costs going or to help like uh, keep the theater afloat. Like they were also renting it out for sort of more like, you know, indie cinema yeah. and, and stuff. So like, you know, more like hipster kind of screenings were happening. And I remember a friend of mine had like a short film playing there as part of like a, you know, some kind of program uh, they're having and invited me. And I was like, oh, the porno theater, like, <laughs> it, I don't know if I want to go sit in the porno theater to watch a movie he's like it's fine it's fine and like his bring girlfriend... a garbage bag to put on your seat well that's what his girlfriend was like wear long pants though <laughs> <laughs> i was like i yeah i, I did and i i kind of wish i did just to see it because it it was a uh it's a nice looking theater an interesting theater but this theater in american werewolf is playing see you next wednesday which is like the running john landis gag Right. In all of his movies, there's a reference to See You Next Wednesday. Interesting. Which was also another fun thing about, like, following his movies as a kid, because, like, before the internet, like, that was just a thing that we all noticed just by, just organically from watching the movies, which was <laughs> From fun. seeing porn in a movie and being like, whoa, <laughs> are those boobs? <laughs> What's the title? <laughs> Is it referenced elsewhere? <laughs> Is it from a Kubrick movie? But also the the actual the uh porno stuff is also like very funny. <laughs> oh yeah, it's like all these scenes where like they're having, you know, porn sex and then they get randomly interrupted awkwardly. Yeah. And it's like I've never seen you before in my life. Okay. <laughs> and then yeah, it, it's it's pretty very funny. And the whole scene, like this whole scene where all of David's victims are like telling him to kill himself, like some it's, it's of them hilarious. very cheerily. Like, yeah, it's almost like a Monty Python sketch or something. Like, it's so funny. Yeah. Um, David, this is Harry Berman and his fiance Judith Browns. Hello. Hello. And these gentlemen are Alf, Ted, and Joseph. Can't say we're pleased to meet you, Mr. Kessler. What shall I do? Suicide. You must take your own life. That's easy for you to say you're you're already dead. No, David. Harry and I and everyone you murder are not dead. The undead 
Why are you doing this to me? But he doesn't kill himself. He, uh, in fact, turns into a werewolf right there in the porno theater, eats a bunch of people who are just trying to enjoy some porno, and uh, and then he goes on like a on a rampage through the streets of London, and he's eating people, he's tearing people apart. But also, there is just the mayhem that is caused by this werewolf running about. There is like, I mean, there is the biggest bunch of car crashes i've seen in a movie that is not explicitly about car crashes i mean i guess it's the most car crashes except for blues brothers yeah, he really should have put that music over like the guy's getting his head crushed by a... <laughs> what does john landis have against cars it's gruesome though there are so many like bodies flying out of the windshields and it's uh and and they're flying out of the opposite side because they're driving on the wrong side of the road. It's crazy, right. but they uh you know eventually all the cops they sort of corner Dave David and you know he bites off one of the inspector's heads and then his nurse girlfriend which oh also he says I love you like way too soon in the relationship and she's like a little bit taken aback and then he's like oh. I've done some terrible things, which I'm going to remember that excuse for the next time I'm in a relationship and I accidentally say something too soon. Just like, oh, I've killed a bunch of people. It's a good out. <laughs> no. Uh, I, please don't get relationship advice from Rob <laughs> if you're okay. listening. But so she she sort of goes through the police lines and she she tries to, like, talk to Werewolf David and, you know, see if, if her love can't transform him. And... Uh, it can't. So, no. no, the the police barely stop him from tearing her to shreds by by shooting him to death. And then the movie just ends. That's it. He's well, dead. It, it ends with another rendition of Blue Moon. Cuz all, all the songs have moon in the title obviously and they play it opens with a version of Blue Moon. Hey. And I think right. there's another one in there. But that just like the you know we see they shoot you see David's body now in human form again. And then it cuts to black and you hear the bop, 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 bam, bam, bam. Like, it's right. just one of the best endings. It's pretty good. And, and it, you know, what stands out to me about this movie is this is just so, like, lean. Like, there's no fat on this movie. Like, it's just, it just, you know, it's a very simple story in a lot of ways. And it just moves through it so cleanly and concisely. And it's also, like, it, yeah, it's so well-paced. Like, you don't even... Like, the time passes differently. Like, I remember I, I was kind of checking the time a few times watching it yesterday. And, like, you feel like the plot is just starting, but it's 35 minutes in. In, right. like, a good way. Like, you feel like you're just getting going. But He doesn't even turn into a like... werewolf until an hour into the movie. Into an hour of an hour of a 90-minute movie. Yeah. But it's also, like, yeah. And it's... You know, like a a so clearly delineated like three acts structure. You know, you've, yeah, like thirty five minutes. It's like the thirty five minute where Mark, where Griffin Dunn shows up and tells me it's a werewolf. Then there's you know, yeah, the whole second act until he yeah transforms, and it's just yeah, I it's, I especially <laughs> admire just like the uh, the like I said the concision of the storytelling of this werewolf uh, narrative. Mm -hmm. I, I appreciate it so much more after having watched Paris, mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, which maybe we should move into now because let's uh, go to Paris. Holy shit. I 
barely remembered this movie. I'd watched some clips of it not that long ago because I was doing a thing about like bad CGI in movies, and I remembered that this was pretty rough. But the whole thing is just uh, just a, a is atrocity too strong of a word? <laughs> Probably, but let's go oh, okay. with it until we can think of something that's more appropriate. Yeah, just like holy shit! Like it's not just like a bad follow up to this movie. It's just a a really bad movie on its own. Like I I it's crazy. love Julie Delpy. I feel feel bad for her. I even feel bad for Tom Everett Scott. Like, <laughs> well, that's not necessary. not one of my favorite actors. Um, I do remember like thinking, oh, this will be cool. He's in it because he was in that thing you do, right? Which yes. I did like quite a bit. Um, mm-hmm. It's a classic. Yeah, but uh, yeah, let's talk about this. Okay, so thing. Much like American Werewolf in London, this follows some American tourists, but there are three this time, and uh, they are douchebags. I mean, they're self-described <laughs> douchebags. They call themselves douchebags. They're doing their, you know, I mean, they're basically ruining Europe by... Uh... <laughs> well, okay, okay, so even, like, right off the bat, they're, like, three, like, bros yeah, backpacking through Europe. Mm-hmm. But their like whole thing is like they're doing like extreme sports. Yeah, they have these daredevil points or something that they're keeping score of, and they're also trying to sleep with women as well. But uh, I think but is that where daredevil. you? If that's what you're doing, is that that's where you go? You like Paris? go back backpacking through like Paris and all of these like it's the most dangerous daredevil place in the world. Okay. I don't know. And also, like, when we first meet them on the train, they're like, yeah, bro, like, yeah, we can fucking do this, and yeah. And they're, like, drinking glasses of red wine. (laughs) It's like, I don't understand these characters. They're in France. Come on. What are they going to (laughs) drink? It's, it's, you know, it's a wet in Rome sort of thing. But so these guys... Love monster energy drink. (laughs) (laughs) So they're in Paris. Uh, They get there. They sneak up to the Eiffel Tower uh, after it closes, and they've got this big old backpack with something in it that they allude to. And it's like, you're not actually going to use that up there. Why are you bringing it? And he's like, oh, you'll see. And uh, it turns out that they're going to do a little bungee jumping thing off the uh, Eiffel Tower. Now, the Eiffel Tower does not seem like a great place to bungee jump because it has that flared yeah. base. You know, I feel like <laughs> that would that would really stop you. Uh, that would. Yeah. But I looked it up, they, and there, a guy did bungee jump off the Eiffel what? Tower. What? Yeah, With it was Julie like Delphi. No, it was in like 1987 or something, and uh, okay. a guy did bungee jump. He lived; he was fine, but he was arrested. That's fair, but it, it, there is precedent. I I okay. looked it up. Okay, all right. So while he's up there, you know, getting uh, getting ready to do this thing, he sees this. A uh, pretty French woman who is standing at the edge, and she is going to commit suicide because these French women are so moody. But he tells her to stop, and uh, you know she's not going to listen to him. And she jumps, and then he goes after her. He and he makes himself aerodynamic so that he can catch up with her, and he grabs her. But the bungee isn't attached. And so uh, his two numbskull friends sort of are holding it, and uh, they somehow they all don't die 
Julie Delphi gets, uh, you know, gently let down onto the ground. Um, but when he goes back up, he does hit the tower uh, in the head, and he wakes up in the hospital. Perhaps a nod to the first film where the oh, definitely, wakes up yeah. in the hospital, yeah. Hold on. Are you saying Julie Delphi, like the Oracle of Delphi? Oh, I am, but Del- maybe that's it's, wrong. It's Delphi. But I feel like she could tell me the future. <laughs> yeah. Okay, Delphi. Delphi, Julie Delphi. Yeah, so he's in the hospital, but like, okay, we're already kind of deviating from the original while still like following it. So mm-hmm. it's, he's like in the hospital, but like nothing interesting is really happening because he's not a turning into a werewolf. <laughs> well, uh, he has to find, he has to return Julie Delpy's shoe. Yeah. I mean, that's uh, a thing that happens. So he gets he out. He falls of, in he, love well, with first, her. He sees her. Julie Delpy. She steals like a heart from, <laughs> from, from a surgery and he sees her and All then right. he, he wants to try and find her. Okay. We're like eight minutes into this movie and there's. And Julie uh, Delpy's already stealing hearts. Yeah, well, they make there's a joke about that, like because the surgeon's like she stole my heart, and he's like you, you and me both, buddy. Right. It's like, why would you make a joke? Like a surgeon, a doctor just told you something legitimately horrifying about this person. Later uh, on, they should have made a Julie Delpy eat your heart out joke, right? <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, but, uh, but okay, yeah. So I was gonna say, you know, one difference between this movie and the original is in this movie. Only eight minutes into the movie, we get a humorous montage set to All Star by Smash Mouth. (laughs) No, no, no. Isn't it Walking on the Sun? Oh, fuck. You're right. It is Walking on the Sun. Yeah. You know. Uh, And, uh, you know, I hope the guy from Smash Mouth is uh, doing okay because I heard he has some troubles lately. That's the other, you know, the, the first movie was. Like the music selections were were so purposeful. Like they're yeah, all it has moon. all this great old music. But yeah, and they weren't all like songs from 1981. Like you know, <laughs> and I'm not saying they should have done, you know, had all moon songs again in the second one. But it's just like, like I think the opening credits are like a Bush song. It's just so painfully 1997. Yeah, uh, I believe the Bush song uh, "Mouth." Was I think they maybe did a promotional music video with uh, scenes from this movie, Ugh. yeah, because um, Julie Delpy's in it. But uh, yeah, I mean it's just very '90s. It's very you know it's soaked in in the '90s isms. But uh, yeah, so they want to go. He wants to go return the shoe to Julie Delpy, and so he tracks her down and goes to her house. But uh, she is not happy to see him. I mean for good reason. But also um, because she was in the middle of something and she her hands are bloody when she answers the door. So that's weird. They think that she's trying to kill herself again, but she says she's just painting. Hi, I'm Andy. We met on the tower. This is Chris and Brad. And uh, listen, this uh, I thought that you would want this and well, it's not my size. <laughs> You're very kind. Now go, please. You must not stay here. Charming and sophisticated. Forget about it. Let's go, Andy. Wait, did you see what I saw? What? She had blood on her hand. She's trying it again. She agrees to meet them. Meet Tom Everett Scott for a date at uh, you know in front of the music hall where we find out her parents were murdered. But uh, 
So he goes to do that, and uh, they have a nice time. But I think he what, what ha- he I think they go to see to find her or something, and they meet up with this other dude they named Claude. Yeah. First of all, their date they don't have a good time. There's like it's a bad a whole, like, extended scene where like he drops a condom and sh- pretends it's chewing gum. So she's like, "Okay, chew it and blow a bubble," and he blows up the condom. Yes. with his me- and then. And that's the whole scene. And then she she's like, you're a creep, and runs off. And she's, like, bicycling away. And he runs after her and, uh, like, chases her down, stops her. And then she, she says something. He's like, oh, you, like, you don't want to go on a date with me? It's like, no, she fucking doesn't. She's, trying, <laughs> she's literally in the act of fleeing. You just chewed on a condom, buddy. You've ruined your chances. Give it up. <laughs> I mean, like, yeah, Before Sunrise would have been like a 20-minute movie if Ethan Hawke started <laughs> munching on a condom in the first act. But, yeah, no, he's I, he's just this kind of creepy dope, and his friends are awful. His but he keeps trying to stalk this girl and harass her, and they go back to her house, and, yeah, some other guy's there, and is basically like, hey, come to this underground rave. And it's like a werewolf rave, we'll find out. The werewolf yeah. raves factor in this movie. Yeah, they're like... There's they're like, like seven werewolf raves in this movie. <laughs> they're totally like, well, we like American Werewolf in London. What if we had more Smash Mouth songs and raves and bungee jumping? <laughs> Ka-ching! <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, this is a werewolf uh, raid. And it, they're like... Uh, they're They're... Gathering up homeless people and Americans, and uh, they sort of. <laughs> <laughs> it's true, they are gathering up Americans. I've... And it's also like, that's also what was so good about the first movie in terms of like, you know, feeling like an outsider. You know, I forgot to mention there is uh, like a interesting visual, I guess you call it like a visual essay or a video on the DVD or the Blu ray of. American World from London about how like the movie is more like an allegory for like uh, David's Judaism. Right. Like, it's, it's like, that's why it's like, that's you know, why it's they not talk about the circumcision. Yeah. Like it's like, like that's why he's like, you know, made to feel like an outsider by this like sort of Anglo-Saxon community. But that's also, you know, like the fear of like the Nazi, they're, like they're not just like demons or werewolves that murder his family. Like they're literal nazis yeah. uh, but so anyway so like th- partly what makes that whole sense of isolation work so well is like he's it's just him like jack is his only friend there is killed it's he's on his own in this uh in this uh strange city um, this movie has too many douchebags this movie's got so many guys so many dudes hanging around and it's just like like it has none of that like it's just like basic things that made the original like i get the original you know is considered a classic this was never going to be that but there are just like certain things uh they copy so much from the formula but then they just screw up so many things <laughs> yeah yeah but so at this werewolf thing, oh, the, <sighs> one guy goes back to get Julie Delpy because she's not around and finds her in a cage. And uh, he, you know, and he tells her, she tells him to go away. She, he tells her that 
Tom Everett Scott's at this party, and then she gets really concerned and asks to be let out of this cage, and she goes sort of rushing out there to save him because it is a werewolf party. And all these uh, people... They Not a werewolf bar mitzvah. Just to <laughs> That's declare. a different thing. That's a di- different thing. That, that would be more appropriate for the first movie, though. Right. right. <laughs> but, yeah, and, like, they're, they're killing all these people, and his friends sort of barely escape. I guess one doesn't escape. One gets eaten or gets killed and sort of ends up washing into the gutter. And Tom Everett Scott, he barely escapes, and he ends up, like, spearing a werewolf with a piece of, like, a gate or something like that. And just as he's escaping out of the tube, um, not the subway, this uh, this sewer tube. He he gets mauled by the werewolf in the leg, and uh, you know what that means. You know he's got to buy new pants because his legs torn. But uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, he's going to turn into a werewolf. So he wakes up at Julie Delphi's place, and Julie Delphi is you know making a uh, a shake of sorts with a couple of human hearts, and she brings it in to give to this guy to drink. And he's not quite ready to hear, you know, the the new truth about him. So she does this really clever thing where she takes off her shirt and then puts his hands on her breasts and then is like, you're a werewolf. It softens the blow, you know? Yeah. Good point. And- <laughs> It softens the blow and also uh, gives them a scene to put in every commercial for that movie. Like, I remember that being the, a big selling point for 1997's horny teenager, you know, audience. Wait, something weird is going on here. I gotta go. My friends. You mustn't. Please. This will relax, you know? I don't get it. Last time we met, you threw bricks at me. Listen, you're not the same as you used to be. Only since I met you. Seriously, there's something I have to tell you. This movie is like literally like, what if we took American Werewolf in London and mixed it with American Pie? (laughs) (laughs) American Werewolf? in london no it's a whole weird scene because he also like he starts having the hallucination dream within a dream things Mm -hmm. they try to do it but it's also too late like now i don't know like i don't know and he sees like her mother who's like a walking corpse right like griffin dunn did you hear like that's supposed to be the tie-in to the first movie i yeah i had read the possibly that was because uh, it doesn't really make sense when you find out kind of all the details about her backstory no. but like the fact that her mom was also a nurse mm-hmm. uh, makes it seem like and she had like her father died and she had a stepfather or whatever like it, mm-hmm. it made it seem like uh, quite possibly what the original story was going to be was they were going to tie it to the first movie by having it be like Julie Delpy's character was a werewolf because she was conceived by uh, a werewolf because, yeah, her father was David. It's passed on that way, fluidly. Yeah. So, like, I I mean, at least that would have been something. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Uh, It does does feel very... Like, it doesn't really have any sort of connection, I mean, to the the original movie. And it does feel like a little bit like... 
what why but and at then the like same time. and then they have kind of like a fight and then he goes and he meets Julie Bowen for some reason yeah that's right uh <sighs> who we should say was uh Jack Shepard's ex-wife that he tried to save on Lost but then uh he didn't love her and then they had to get divorced she's also on modern family well I don't watch that. <laughs> I just, just rewatch Lost just every three years. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, she he goes. You know, they have like a very sexy time. They go to um, desecrate Jim Morrison's grave by having <laughs> sexy times on it. Or maybe that's what he would want. He's probably like looking up from above and being like, "All right, let me join in." Ooh, that's what he sounds like. <laughs> But uh, he <laughs> turns into a werewolf and uh, eats her. So, you know, she's dead. But uh, she comes back, so it's okay. Yeah, and also his friend comes back, and that's, you know, he tells him, hey, you're a werewolf. But he doesn't want him to kill himself. He wants him to kill Serafina. Because he thinks that Julie Delpy's character, Serafina, is the one I think it's has... Serafine or something. Oh, you're right, yeah. Who has killed him and bitten him so that's what she's the sort of thing and he feels sort of conflicted because he doesn't want to kill this lady because he kind of likes her because uh she's gorgeous and french and uh she's just so i don't know wonderful and she has like a charming voice and her accent is really wonderful but um yeah i'm fine i'm fine just going through something but uh yeah she uh she's dead Julie Bowen. Yeah, I I mean, I don't know how much we want to talk about this, but the, the big werewolf rave at the end. Uh, oh, and there's a, like a werewolf fight. I mean, uh, this is the other stupid thing. It's like the original is so such a simple story. This adds so many characters. And you, like you just yeah, feel like, like this, this must have been a studio note at some point where they're like, can we have good werewolves and bad werewolves? <laughs> so it the sets up the big, uh, you know, American werewolf IP, you know? Where, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's also yeah. sort of like, um, you know, it's like the vampire theater thing in uh, Interview with the Vampire. They basically do the same thing, invite a bunch of right. people to the thing and then massacre them. But, uh, yeah, these but werewolves... Also like the- yeah, the the CGI in these of these werewolves. It's not just simply like, oh, you know, like it was 1997, like CGI wasn't quite there yet. Like it, it looks, was bad for the time. Yeah, it was. They bad don't for even the look time. like wolves. They look like I I don't know some sort of like marmots or something. They look like you remember the show Animorphs when yes. the people would morph an animal. It looks like if you like pause mid morph and look at. <laughs> You know the trans that it looks like a paused anamorph, but like in motion. <laughs> yeah. So the the werewolf cult they want to like cleanse the earth of all the scum, which I guess includes Americans, and uh, you know, and live in a world like that. And he gives this whole big speech about how he wants to, yeah, he wants to live in like a world without technology, while there's like a boombox on the uh, altar next <laughs> to them. It's like, where are you going to listen to your Gregorian chants once you, uh, you know, killed all the humans and taken all the technology away? But they have this like serum because Julie Delpy's stepdad was working on this potion. <laughs> That would make uh, I, her... Should we just stop? I mean, this is this movie is just yeah, it's pretty much. There's moves. a magic potion at the end. There's like a magic uh... potion. Um, is there okay? Well, what of note? Is there anything of note that we should talk about? 
with American Werewolf in Paris before we, you know, leave it to the viewers, listeners? I nope. don't think. Well, I mean, also the ending is just like we talked about. Right. The first I mean, one has that like ending where like the the protagonist dies. His his girlfriend is like shocked and horrified and could do nothing to save him. And in fact, you know, was there when he got killed. And this one ends on a completely different note with Julie Delpy and the guy bungee jumping off the Statue of Liberty. Yeah. What was that? Again, like they're like, well, you know, the kids really came for bungee jumping. We should probably get another bungee jumping scene into the end of the movie. They should have used the bungee jumping to somehow stop the main werewolf. Like, oh, he doesn't know that I got this bungee. And then, like, jump off something. And it's like, oh, bungee. I okay. could see, like, this movie was, like, three drafts away from just being about bungee jumping and, like, having no werewolves in it. <laughs> <laughs> An American bungeeist in Paris. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah the, one of the bungees again wasn't like tied up. Like, <laughs> yeah, these guys are just like terrible and negligent at safety. Like, how many people have they, you know? They probably started up with started off with like five bros. Two of them died in like, like Rome. It was like sixteen Americans went to Europe and two came back, <laughs> and they were all killed by the werewolf. Huh? No, 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 no. Just one by the werewolf. The rest were yeah. bungee man. Statistically, werewolves are safer than bungee jumping. Yeah. <laughs> it's been proven the lycanthropy is uh, far safer to the average American than uh, than unsupervised bungee uh, accidents. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so, yeah uh, this movie, God. Oh, I guess Lord. the one thing is is that he discovers that it wasn't Julie Delpy who bit him. It was Claude. And uh, so he doesn't have to eat out Julie Delpy's heart. Which that's good, and instead he uh, pretty hilariously eats out this uh, guy's heart, and it looks like it looks like you know not even a cutscene from a video game. It looks like actual gameplay from a PlayStation <laughs> One. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. Yeah, but that yeah, that's an American werewolf in Paris and an American werewolf in London, and so I have some trivia and some behind the scenes, mostly about American Werewolf in London. Right after this break. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome back to Rewatchability. We are talking about American Werewolf in London and, to a lesser extent, American Werewolf in Paris. Uh, and I've, yeah. got some, I've got some trivia for you, JM, so okay. you, better, you better be ready. Uh, this is some hard stuff uh, because uh, there's not a lot about... Uh, well, I mean, okay. Anyway, all right. So, uh, okay, this one, this one, I think you could get because it's it's. I'm I'm sort of shooting it right in your direction. So, okay, which song did Bob Dylan not agree to allow to be put in this movie? Bob Dylan, the folk singer. Wait, You're a big which Bob movie? Dylan fan. 
this American Werewolf in London, I should say. Um, it's got to be one with Moon in the title, I guess. Right? Well, yeah, I guess so. Uh, what's Bob Dylan's song with Moon in the title? Moon. Uh, like a rolling moon. <laughs> uh, Desolation Moon Row. <laughs> <laughs> Tombstone moons <laughs> blowing uh, in the moon wind. <laughs> uh, wow. Well, okay. Uh, yeah, I, I can't. No one wants to listen to me think about this. What is it? Okay. Well, it's uh, it's a bit of a trick question because it's not one that he wrote, but it was his cover of Blue uh, Moon, which is in this movie by uh, other artists. But the Bob Dylan version does not appear. Wait, because when did he cover Blue Moon? In the in the late sixties, I, I listened to it. It sounds pretty good. Oh, is it the one on, on that like album just called Dylan that was like thrown together? Maybe like by, by yeah. Columbia I think it was just a demo. Yeah, yeah probably, probably. But the reason that Bob Dylan wouldn't allow this movie to be used in uh, his song to be used in the American Werewolf in London was because uh, it was when Bob Dylan was going through his Christian phase. Uh, you know, his slow train of coming, and he uh, he he didn't feel that the movie had good values. Oh, oh, yeah. I'm sorry. It's on self portrait. There you go. Hmm. Well, that's interesting. Yeah, and apparently they also couldn't use the Elvis Presley version of Blue Moon because of legal things. Right. Legal werewolves we can't are have like to... lawyers. How many? There's like three versions of it in here right like i think that's enough well i think probably they would have like not had one of those ones maybe you know? oh okay i see but uh yeah okay so you know what that was that was a tough one that was uh, a tough one because i you know i don't know i have it and i've listened to it but i don't listen to self-portrait that often okay. I, I like it though i i think it's underrated yeah i don't i don't know i don't actually know if i've heard that one maybe i'll uh Put it on my Spotify. Okay, so yeah, which movie reunites John Landis, Griffin Dunn, and Jenny Agutter? Oh, John Landis movie. Hmm. Give me a, a clue. Um, I feel like he wasn't the only director on this movie. Oh, was it uh, Amazon Women on the Moon? That's correct. Okay. And Griffin Dunn was in his uh, segment, but Jenny Agatar wasn't. But uh, she, she shows Which, up. Who's she in it? I don't remember her. Oh, you know what? I think actually her segment got cut, uh, or oh, it's cut okay. from some versions of it. So it's out there, but it's not maybe in the final movie. <laughs> the Griffin Dunn <laughs> bit's hilarious. It's the one where he's the doctor that loses uh, Peter Horton, I think, and Michelle Pfeiffer's baby. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's it's... That's a funny bit. Uh, okay, all right. Keep okay, going. this one's really hard. Oh, fuck. But uh, I think if you if you get it, I think it'll be rewarding. Okay, so 
which cast member of American Werewolf in London mm. has a role in Star Wars Return of the Jedi? Jesus. An American Werewolf in London. Yeah, it's not Griffin Dunn. Well, see, all those English character actors were... It's true, it could be anybody. It could be anybody. I feel like I... Wait, did I say which Star Wars movie it was? Did you say Return of the Jedi? Yeah, I did. Okay, all right. Was it Empire and Jedi, or just Jedi? Just Jedi, I think. Oh, shit. And, okay, he's in Jabba's Palace. Okay, that's not what I was thinking. He's a mm. tall man. No, I don't know. There's, no, I mean, there's no way that you could have. I mean, maybe I, I don't know how much Star Wars nerds know about Star Wars, but I would have only known this by clicking on the IMDb's and looking, doing a deep dive through these people's filmographies. So it's not like I have some special knowledge that I'm, you know, lording over you or anything. But I did happen to see this, and I thought it was interesting. Okay, the guy who play the guy who plays, um, I think his name is Gerard something. He, the one who gets killed in the subway in the tube. Right. He is the actor who plays Bib Fortuna. Right. I did, you know, I did know that. I think I heard someone else on a podcast say that. That's the sort of stuff you hear on podcasts. And he was in something else too, that guy. Um, yeah. I he he was for sure. I mean, most of uh, these actors have been in other things. Uh Well, yeah. Griffin and Dunn was in My Girl. I th- I thought you were, yeah, but I thought you were maybe going to ask about a trivia question about Rick Mail, who's in oh, yeah. the, the pub scene. Um, I did see him there, yeah. Which and, Drop Dead Fred actor yeah. is in. <laughs> uh, oh, and Frank Oz, we didn't mention, too, also uh, That's right. shows up. Well, twice. Uh, twice. He's, he's yeah, also on the TV screen as Miss Piggy. Oh, yeah, it's like, that doctor sounds a lot like Fozzie Bear. There's also, it's also funny, like, because he really sounds like Bert in the scene where, I guess he always sounds like that, but, like, the part where he's going, Mr. Kessler, Mr. Kessler. Right. <laughs> like, it's just so. Uh... See, I heard Fozzie. Oh, okay, interesting. Yeah. Uh, there were some other interesting notes that I found while I was plumbing the uh, IMDb, like, and Wikipedia. For example, in the uh, one of the act- the actress the main actress in the porno movie whose name is Lindsay Drew she uh, I mean she was an actual pornographic actress who was um, arrested for like distributing pornographer but she was also oh. sort of famously the uh, on the front cover of that Roger Waters album uh, um, what's it called hitchhiking hitchhiking naked or something okay I don't know <laughs> do you know that one have you no. seen that one okay. no I don't. Well, if you've ever looked through like a an HMV cutout bin, uh, the co- dangers. Anyway, I thought that was interesting. But also, she was in a lot of movies, a lot of Ken, Ken Russell movies as well. Oh, which is sort of interesting. And also, Nina Carter, who is in that uh, scene that David watches on the TV, where it's like, "Ooh, who is this bad actress?" And you know, what's right. her naughty secrets? Yeah, yeah. She was in a band called Blonde on Blonde name of Dylan album, mm-hmm. which was, I kid you not, big in Japan. It was big in Japan. They were big in Japan. Okay. Which I, I mean, I, I've heard it as a cliche. 
I seldom read about people who were actually big in Japan. And their big song was a cover of Led Zeppelin's Whole Lot of Love, which I could not find on the internet. Oh, wow. <laughs> and she was married to Rick Wakeman, too. But, uh, you know, that's less impressive of the being uh, big in Japan. Okay, so behind the scenes... Oh, stuff- wait, I, I just want to say the guy who plays Bib Fortuna and the subway guy here, his name is Michael Carter. Mm-hmm. His character's name is Gerald. Yes. Uh, and he is in a bunch of other stuff, but nothing quite as big as either of those he's in the keep the michael mann movie but right yeah i think maybe like on an episode of star wars minute or something someone mentioned the bib fortuna american werewolf connection oh yeah a lot of the cast apparently were actually appearing uh on the west end at nick maybe not the west end at something and on a production of nicholas nickleby and oh so really just sort of like pulled them in yeah like the doctor uh, I think was in that Nicholas Nickleby. Um, oh, he's so good. I love that doctor. Yeah. Also, the the cop with the mustache, he's really funny, too. Who's always, like, dropping oh, yeah. the, like, the puke things or whatever. That's That whole, like, even that, you know, we talk about the comedy in the movie and the naturalism of the movie. Like, uh, even just, like, yeah, the scene with the two cops, like, having one of them be younger and more presumptuous and one of them be older and, like, more, you know... Uh, you know, kind of trying to keep him in his place. Like, yeah, imbuing those sort of expositional scenes with those these little character eccentricities. It's just so great. Yeah. Apparently, John Landis got the idea for this movie while he was in Yugoslavia, where he was working on Ke- uh, Kelly's Heroes. He was at a funeral in Europe, and, you know, these superstitious people... They uh, they buried the person in a very deep hole, feet first, and covered in garlic. And he was like, oh, that's weird. They must be afraid of something happening. And he thought werewolves, even though garlic, clear, clearly vampire town. But uh, that's where he sort of got the idea. He had it sort of kicking around for a long time. Like, he says that he got the idea in 1969. He brought it to people. They said it was too too scary to be a comedy and too funny to be a horror movie. So it, it took him a long time to uh, get it made. And, uh, I mean, eventually mm. he did. Um, they had, you know, it was a very small crew that they took over to England they had problems getting Griffin Dunn a visa, apparently, or a work permit, and he didn't know what he was going to do because, you know, you need Griffin Dunn to make this movie. And so apparently John Landis threatened, he wrote a letter and threatened to rewrite the script as An American Werewolf in Paris. And, right. uh, and, then, and then they, you know, let him I, in, and then he didn't it, have to do that. He's like, I'll write a bungee scene, I will. Yeah, it's an even bigger threat than they thought, yeah. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> but, wow. uh, yeah. Yeah, I, so, you know, that's uh, that's what they did. I have yeah. one piece of trivia about this movie I wanted to mention. Okay. And, and that is, do you know about the sequel that John Landis pitched for this? Well, yeah, for... Before they made An American Werewolf in Paris, they did ask John Landis to write a script and pitch a version of this. And it was something like the nurse is still there and she's investigating the murders that happened to no, no. or something like that. It's even weirder. It's It focuses okay. on – because I wrote about it one time. I read like an interview with him and like it was like an old issue of Starlog or Fangoria or one of those magazines. Hmm. 
and he, he talks all about it, but it was like the main character of this movie is Debbie Klein. And, oh. and if you'll remember, Debbie Klein is the uh right the friend of theirs that they briefly objectify at the beginning of the movie. Like yeah. Griffin Dunn's talking about how he no, like, the one with has the one that doesn't have a mediocre body. Right, exactly. And so this hot bodied woman, Debbie Klein. <laughs> the idea is like I think they were gonna like sort of retcon it so like David wrote Debbie Klein a letter while he was going through all the werewolf stuff. Oh. And then she like... 20 uh, years later. Because she was like secretly having an affair with him without David's knowledge. Um, and so she starts... She's uh, suspicious about his death right. and comes to England and starts investigating. Uh, and then weirdly, the like Nazi mutant werewolf demon creatures from David's dream... They're back. They're back? <laughs> Even though that was just his dream. That wasn't and, a dream. And apparently Debbie randomly, I'm quoting myself, I'm reading an old article. It says, Debbie randomly starts having them, starts uh, seeing them too uh, when she's, a, or no, she, Debbie randomly starts having the same dream and then starts seeing those guys when she's awake. And then according to John Landis, quote, the violence becomes so overwhelming that the audience would eventually lose sight of what was real and what wasn't. Uh, <laughs> wow. And then, uh, she, Debbie would eventually, uh, find Alex, the, uh, the nurse, the love interest. Right. And, uh, in a shocking they have a twist, cat fight. Well, she sees, uh, her like making out with someone, but then we see that it's David's corpse she's making out with. And like, Whoa. she's a werewolf too now, but she, so she's like having visions of his like undead spirit and they're like. Just okay. continuing their relationship, and <laughs> then a bunch of stuff happens. And uh, oh yeah, I guess Alex dies. They all die, and then it ends with uh, <laughs> it ends with Jack and David together again, walking into the afterlife. And Jack turns to David and says, "So you fucked Debbie Klein, huh?" <laughs> and that's the end of the movie. Wow. Okay, I I can't believe that. Uh... I can't believe I thought that American Werewolf in Paris was the lowest that it was going to get on this podcast. But that is, that's bad. First of all, putting this thing in their friendship, he would never, David would never sleep with, wait, Griffin would never sleep with David. They would never do no, that. It was David, yeah. Anyways, I, I, that may have just been like, uh, you know. That's pretty I don't. I don't know if he actually wanted to do that. But they made this movie instead, and uh, yeah, it's it's not good. Did you read that they uh, that um, John Landis had to sort of lure Rick Baker away from the Howling for this because apparently he had talked to Rick Baker. They were going to make this movie. They had worked on some of the preliminary designs and all that stuff, but he couldn't get the funding. And then when he finally did get the funding, Rick Baker was already uh, set to work on the Howling. And so yeah. he had to sort of uh, he put his his next in charge in charge of that and only consulted on the howling and came to work on American Werewolf in Paris. But apparently John Landis was still pissed because uh, he, the the werewolves in the howling looked too much like the werewolves in American Werewolf in London. Yeah, well, I, and I think the person that Rick Baker left in charge of the howling, if I'm not mistaken, was Rob Bottin. Yeah. 
who went on to become, you know, effects legend, did all the creature effects for the thing. Right. You know, a legend in his own right. So yeah, no, no slouch there, but I mean, come on, John, like, I mean, it's a werewolf. Like there's only, yeah, <laughs> so many it's got variations. Ears, it's a tail. It's a fuzzy thing. You know, you, there's only so many directions you can go. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, that's pretty much all that I have for behind the scenes stuff, uh, with American Werewolf in London. Oh, at one point the studio wanted, uh, Dan Aykroyd and James Belushi to star. Or John Belushi. Yeah, John Belushi to start it. That would have been shitty. But, uh... <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's, you know, what that, it would have been too broad. It would have been something else. Like, what makes this movie work so well is, like, these guys feel believable, like, right mm-hmm. from the jump. Like, it, and, you know, it's interesting. Like, I was thinking about it, about, watching it for the first time uh, now more than I ever have before because we're doing it for the podcast and thinking about like, you know, I watched this movie specifically because I thought it would be less scary because it was also funny or, you know, I thought I'd be able to, to take it better or something, which was true at the time, certainly, but like watching it now, I find like, Oh, that's actually what makes it scarier in a way because like, everybody's kind of like acting or joking around like you or your friends might joke around. Yeah, exactly. And like that doesn't stop the scary things. Yeah. And when the scary stuff hits, it like hits harder because it's in a world that feels all that is shattered. Yeah. Well, and uh, it's just like, it's a world that feels like so grounded and so relatable that like, Mm -hmm. it's the idea that this could uh, happen. And it's also, you know, I wasn't really, I obviously wasn't thinking about this at the time when I saw it because it hadn't come out yet, but like thinking of like the sort of meta horror, maybe revolution's too strong a word, but like the popularization of, of that trend that came with scream, uh, in what that was 96, I think, but like that, you know, that was kind of like, you know, after that, every horror movie was like, you know, talking about horror movies. Yeah. Or like, you know, like, bringing up horror movies in the horror movie, which, you know, it obviously had been done before, but like... Well, American Werewolf in London does it. Well, that's the thing. Like, watching it now, it's like, oh, yeah, like, this is, like, they all relate to all the werewolves. Like, both Jack and David relate to the werewolf stuff through the lens of, like, the Wolfman movie and the Universal movie. And, Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, it was just interesting to think about, like, to think about it as kind of, like... Uh, of, of having uh, kind of paved the way for, for that trend a bit as well. Because I don't think it really gets talked about in that context as much because it's certainly not a focus, but like that's how, which is also like, <laughs> that's what I was saying. It makes it scary. It makes it more relatable because like if that were to happen to like you or me, like that's how we would That'd be terrifying. interpret <laughs> the, you know, what was happening like through like movies we'd seen. So yeah. Um, yeah, man, it's just so great. And everything that's wrong about An American Werewolf in Paris, like you can just look at its counterpart in the first movie and see how it's done better because they do do so much the similar. Like mm-hmm. even like talking about the relatability of the two characters, like we have a very similar scene to the scene where Jack and David are walking through, uh, you know, the, the English countryside and, and just, 
chatting like we get the version of that with like the three bros on the train but like that feels like you know a 47 year old screenwriter just like banging out a draft before lunch so he can just be done with it and like you know sketching out this cartoon version of three american youths whereas uh yeah the other just feels so natural and so believable and you know that's the trick of the movie really yeah i yeah and it makes the the characters are so great they really do like i think they draw you in and they're like friendship and sort of you know they're like sort of like friendly bickering is 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 lots of fun you know did you yeah, read and... any stuff on the internet about like the sort of like queer interpretations of this movie? Not Paris or Engl- or London. London. <laughs> no, I didn't. I didn't. Uh well, there's there's at least one essay out there that I took a I took a read at and it's sort of like positions like um you know, I mean like the werewolf is the sexuality and uh he tries to sort of like not embrace it or something like that. I don't know. It's 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 out there. Go Google it if you're if you're interested in the queering of American Werewolf in Paris, uh, London. I I definitely like heard that, you know, applied to like the older like the Universal movies, like the the original like the Wolfman, and also like you know famously like uh, Harry Potter. They, you know. <laughs> I don't know. No, noted ally J.K. Rowling <laughs> claimed that, that uh, the the sort of werewolf character in that franchise uh, was was supposed to be like an allegory for a queer character. Um, but yeah, wow. no, I hadn't I hadn't really read about it in terms of uh, this movie. But sort of interesting. Oh. I mean, I don't know. It does seem like maybe like a little bit of a stretch. But like, they're the two their friendship between David and uh and Jack I mean it could it does seem very familiar like it could almost be like a code for like a relationship or something like that and that would also like sort of speak to the sort of outsiderness of their uh of their experience but yeah there there is also a really good thing if you are interested in American Werewolf in Paris there was a good uh interview or something with uh, the screenwriters, um, one of whom is from Toronto, actually. Really? Um, yeah, I think his name is Tom Burns. Um, but yeah, apparently, like they they had like a bunch of ideas for the the movie, and it seems like it could have been like kind of okay. But then the director came in and put his stamp on it, and a lot of the things went you know all over the place. So it's sort of interesting to see uh, where it went wrong. Mm. I, I forgot the other thing I wanted to mention about American Werewolf in Paris is we haven't talked about that it was directed by a guy named Anthony Waller. Yeah. Who who got the gig to make this movie because he had made a movie called Mute Witness. Right. Did you ever see that? No. I have always wanted to see that. I've heard it's really good. And it's it's hard to find these days. I think it's all on YouTube right now. Um, okay. So I, I think I might watch it because I've always wanted to see it, but it's got a really interesting story behind one of the cameos in it because it's the last, I believe it's the last screen appearance by Alec Guinness. Yeah, I saw them in. I saw him in the cast there. Yeah, and the Obi Wan. The, the movie came out in 1995. What? Alec Guinness filmed his scene in 1985. 
What? And it's this crazy scene or this crazy story where like this guy, uh, Anthony Waller was just like, I think he was at some kind of party. I don't remember what it was. It was somewhere in, in Europe or something. He was at some kind of like events and Alec Guinness was there and he struck up a conversation with him and he told him about this movie. And it, it was like, I, I, you know, I like, I want, uh, I would love for, for you to need a, a small part in it. And he was like, Oh, you know, like I'd love to, but, uh, I, uh, die soon. No, no. Well, he was still alive. He, he lived, uh, okay. into the nineties, but he said, uh, he said, I'd love to, but I'm like booked solid for like the next 18 months. So this guy, uh, Anthony Waller, like got him to read the script, got him to agree to it, wrote a scene specifically for Alec Guinness, hired a camera crew overnight and wow. shot the scene the next day. <laughs> wow. Uh, just because it was like the That's only ballsy. chance to like. Like Alec Guinness filmed his scene the morning, the next day after he met this guy, and then got on a plane at like lunchtime. <laughs> That's kind of awesome, but like I can't imagine how like the footage would match up to like something that was filmed ten years later. Well, I think I think they did have to like do like reverse something or something, but it was also like its own little scene. Like I don't like it's basically a cameo, right. and I don't think he like interacts with the other characters necessarily. But it is also funny. It's like he was busy for the next 18 months and it was like, oh, I better film it now. But then he didn't end up making the rest of the movie for <laughs> 10 years. So That's he probably could have just cast him the old fashioned way. Uh, but, oh, one uh, other thing yeah. I thought was really funny was that apparently David Naughton, who, you know, he's had a career, but he hasn't done a lot of like really big roles. Before this movie, he was apparently known for the Dr. Pepper commercials. He was like the Dr. Right. Pepper uh, spokesperson. And like so much, he was so well recognized as this that even like at the end of the movie, when they shot his like death scene after that, they like all the crew like dance around him singing the Dr. Pepper tune or whatever. Or John Landis even says that he hired the guy because he saw him in the Dr. Pepper commercial. And in the Dr. Pepper commercial, he says, I'm, I'm a pepper, you're a pepper. And John Landis was like, I'm a pepper. So I, and he's a pepper. So we had a lot in common. I, I didn't see this commercial, so I don't know. I don't know. It's it's weird. But apparently he lost his Dr. Pepper gig because of uh, all the scenes of his dong in this movie. <laughs> it's Dr. Pepper, not Dr. Pecker. And, uh, yeah. You've been waiting like two hours to say that, haven't you? <laughs> Longer. Okay, let's wrap it up. J.M., tell me, how did you feel rewatching American Werewolf in London and then... American Werewolf in Paris. Uh, yeah, I mean, I love the first one. I continue to love it. Um, I think it's just such a great movie. And it's, it's you know, one of those movies that you can rewatch over and over again. I Like I said, because it's, it's just so, um, so concise and like so simple. And like, yeah, it's just this kind of perfectly constructed story that feels both small and huge at the same time it's like very intimate and and uh down to earth but also like you know huge and mythical and supernatural uh and it it pulls off that balance perfectly i mean also just like the atmosphere 
in this movie. Like watching this movie, like you feel like you are in these places. Like, I feel like I've been to the slaughtered lamb. I feel like I've right. been uh, on those, the moors. The moors. Uh, it's just, yeah, it's so palpable. Like even, even like the spaces, like the hospital and the apartment, like they just all feel so, uh, like you could, you could step into them. Um, I, I don't know. They're just, it's just such a great movie. I love it. Um, and the performances and David Naughton, like you talked about, like, it's not like he became a huge star or anything after this, but he's really good in it. And it's a great performance. Yeah. And uh, as we saw with Tom Everett Scott, like it's not always easy to no. <laughs> to pull that off. Um, yeah. And watching that movie again, like I kind of thought like, oh, it's going to be like not great, especially because it's, you know, like following up this classic, but I did not expect it to be quite so horrific like i mean like yeah even just like taking it's not just that they took what worked about the first movie and didn't do it as well it's like they took what worked about the first movie and like either didn't get it or like ruined it like even like the first time they have like the tom ever scott character like talking to one of like the the undead souls that's tormented by you know being stuck in this limbo the first time he does that he's like in the bathroom and so they kind of turn it into like a dick joke where (laughs) it sounds like yeah he's talking to no one and someone else is in the stall it's like why why did you i don't know and like it's just it's it's obscene i hated it i (laughs) wish it didn't (laughs) exist um yeah but it is like the most 90s movie I would it is a very 90s movie. Um, if you wanted the most. And I feel bad for Julie Delpy because I love Julie Delpy. She's adorable. And, and uh, a great actress. And she's got a new a show cultural right treasure. Now. Does she? she is. Yeah. Uh, cool. I'll watch that. And uh, yeah, so I, I, yeah, I, I hate it. And I love the first one. And for a movie that's about duality, yeah, maybe it makes makes sense for one to be mm. be wonderful and one to be terrible. Uh, but uh, like I said, I have separate feelings about its filmmaker John Landis, and uh, and uh, I will separate uh, the art from the artists in this instance and continue <laughs> to en- enjoy this this movie uh what about you rob yeah i mean i hadn't seen it before but it was pretty enjoyable i mean um it it is a lot slower than uh, you know a lot of modern movies there's less that sort of happens but i think it has a great tone and atmosphere and i think the the performances of the two guys um i mean they really make the first part of the movie and uh it's sort of you know it works all the way through it's it is a crazy movie. I mean, it's there's so much like John Landis stuff in it, like the, the uh, ninety million car crashes, and yeah. you know, I feel like some of like the Frank uh, sexualness. Uh, but I, I think, yeah, I think it's a it's a good movie, and uh, yeah, I would watch it again. As for American Werewolf in Paris, yeah, I mean, I tried to give it a chance. You know, I you know those characters do feel like people who existed in the nineties. Um, it felt like that they felt like, you know, they were real, um, but it was bad. The performances were bad. I mean, all those three guys had very punchable faces. Julie Delpy was great. She was, 
she was better than she had great, to be. Yeah. <laughs> she didn't have to be that good, um, but she really, she really gave it her all. And uh, it feels like they shot. It feels like they met Julie Delpy at a party, shot all of her <laughs> stuff the next day, and then like cut it in with these like. <laughs> jackasses and i you know i like tom everett scott but he does not give a good performance here no it's a really bad performance and like the other guys like his friends are like one of them is just like one of those guys is in a bunch of 90s things one of them i recognize is like a guy who played like the super and fraser's building (laughs) and like a few episodes of fraser oh wow Uh, yeah so uh yeah not good and also like the other the last thing i want to say is also in terms of like the theme of like you know the outsider uh that is so much a part like it's right there in the title it's an american werewolf in london mm. like the first movie is so about being an outsider and you know we can take that theme and apply it to various you know uh other allegorical or or thematic readings of it and and i think that's interesting but i also love that it's it's nuanced enough that it also like tells variations of that story even within uh within the world of the movie like right. we also get the scene where the doctor who's starting to get suspicious about it also goes to the slaughtered lamb mm-hmm. and he is and he's also an outsider in a whole different way yeah he's an outsider because he's this like uh you know posh doctor. london doctor yeah so he's and he you know like he doesn't they don't have the drink he wants at the bar and he's you know and the the People, townspeople are sort of like intimidated by him. Yeah. So I, I like, I love that too. Like, it's, it's, it's not just about one thing. It's about like how uh, people are all, you know, territorial in different yeah. ways. Like everybody is um, to a certain extent. I don't know. I, I, I love that movie. I see, I also see new things in it every time. Uh, and I will never watch an American werewolf in Paris ever again. <laughs> if you try to make me, I will fight you. <laughs> uh, you know what? I don't think that's going to have to happen, you know? Uh, yeah. So that's that's rewatchability. Oh, I should. I also want to say, well, anyway. No, no. What were you going to say? Well, there was, there was, there was you know, <laughs> John Landis' stupid fucking kid was going to remake. Oh, that's movie. right. But uh, I think that's maybe not happening. No, now. it's not. It's not. There was also a guy who was trying to shop around a a threequel called an American pair, an American werewolf in Rome, Rome, Italy. Okay. But uh, I don't know. I don't know how that's going. I say at this point, just like sort of merge them with like the trip. You know, you can have like Steve Coogan maybe he's right. attacked by American <laughs> werewolf. They can go to wherever, whatever country they want to. Okay, that's rewatchability for this week. <laughs> Thanks for listening. You can find us on Apple Podcasts where you can go and subscribe and rate us and review us. We're also on any of the other podcatcher things that you listen to, Spotify, Stitcher, if that's still a thing. If you want to communicate with us, we're on Twitter at Rewatchability or we're on Facebook. We're also on Instagram at Rewatchability. And if you'd like to become a Patreon, go to patreon.com slash rewatchability and you can make uh give us some money there and uh yeah until so not for a while not for a while not for a while not because we're pausing this month pause but uh yeah that's uh yeah that's what we got i don't know What, what do we what do we say to end this thing beware the moon yeah i'm scared 
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.